Software Engineering Radio episode 83, feature-driven development with Jeff DeLuca. Welcome listeners to yet another episode of Software Engineering Radio. This is episode 83. Um, before we get to this week's, or well, I shouldn't say this week's, before we get to the content of this episode, which is uh, Martin Lippert interviewing uh, Jeff DeLuca on uh, feature-driven development, please uh, don't forget uh, you should go to uh, the website se-radio.net, click on the link on the left which is the get together and inform us about whether you're going to come or not and well under which circumstances we really need to know this so we can go ahead and plan or maybe also not plan if we don't see enough interest okay have fun with this episode and please welcome martin okay so welcome jeff to to software engineering radio and before we start uh, i would like to ask you if you could introduce yourself to our listeners okay well thank you uh, thanks for inviting me to to speak uh, my name's Jeff DeLuca. I, uh, I do a lot of things in IT, but what I like to do most is project management, and that's what I've been doing for a long time, 15, 20 years. Um, I'm the inventor or creator of feature-driven development, which is one of the uh, agile methodologies, and um, that's what I've been doing here in Hamburg. Okay, great. Thanks for being here. So can you tell us a bit more about uh, what, what is feature-driven development? I heard it in, in, in the area of, of agile methodologies. So what, what is it about? Well, feature-driven development is really just the way I run uh, software projects. And uh, I've been doing that for some period of time. It was much later that FTD was given a name and then written about. And, in, and then it was after that that it was um, blessed, if you like, by the founding fathers as one of these agile methodologies. So... It's my approach to running software projects. It predated Agile, but it's it's one of the original or founding Agile methods. So how does uh, how does feature-driven development look like? It's a fairly simple process. It it's, uh, has five, or methodology, it has five processes in it or five major steps. Each of those processes is written or described in only one or two pages each. And it tells you what to do. So it's, it's not, you know, six or seven hundreds of uh, pages of vagueness like RUP or Rational Unified Process. You know, it's not a 30-volume uh, epic like Method 1 or some of these heavyweight sort of things. Um, it's very practical. It's focused on, since I'm a project manager and that's what I do for a living, it's focused on the sorts of issues that we have. You know? How do you do fixed-price development work? How we answer questions such as how far along are you? How far is there left to go? And, you know, be able to do that against a baseline with good coverage and good accuracy. Okay, so so how how does it look like in practice? So I uh, I would like to start a feature driven development project. So mm -hmm. what 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 do I do? Okay, well the first step in feature driven development is we bring together uh, what we call domain experts, which is ideally real users or business people. We bring them together with our senior developers, and we do an activity called modeling, modeling the domain. So the domain experts will come in. They describe their domain, their business, in a series of roughly twenty minute or so topics. Uh, we'll do question and answer while they're describing this piece of their business. And then we'll break into teams and collaboratively, developers and business people together will compose models in support of those walkthroughs. 
So in terms of artifact production, there's this overall model that's produced, but really the secret ingredients, if you like, are the knowledge transfer that's taking place. It's a design activity, but it's also requirements analysis and requirements discovery. Okay, and, and you, you said you, you, you create some kind of, of models. How mm -hmm. does those models look like? Are they, they formalized or, or just non-formalized stuff? Well, they're, they're formal in the sense that they are genuine UML class diagrams. Right? Okay. Um, but the way we actually do it is we use pieces of flip chart paper. We use color post-it notes. The post-it notes represent the classes. We write the names on them and stick them on sheets of paper and work in a team low fidelity like that. And then each team will bring their model up to the room and present it to the other teams. And there will be a question and answer on why there's differences. You know, and we get differences of perspective of the business, differences in interpretation. And these things are captured explicitly. And we'll come to agreement on what the right shape for this particular part of the domain should be. Okay. And, and you, you do this kind of, of design sessions together with the customer? Yes, absolutely. With the domain experts? Yeah. So it, it sounds a bit bit different than, than than other agile methodologies where for example in extreme programming you you not do not talk about uml diagrams right you more talk about user stories or or, or feature stories okay well yeah stories would be more analogous to features which is the next step in in fdd so yeah you're right fdd is different to most of the other agile methods in this one area and so what we're talking about here is that um they're all iterative incremental approaches as is fdd However, if we're too pure in our iterative approach, meaning that we're also going to iterate through requirements itself, then, then it's hard for us as a project manager to answer the question, how far along are you? How far is there left to go? It's, it's very hard to answer that question and be accurate when we haven't looked at all of the requirements yet. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be some sort of uh, informational analytical activity up front that will give us enough knowledge to be able to set a baseline with good coverage and good accuracy so that we then can answer these questions. Now, it's, it's not a big design up front or a heavy activity. I mean, we'll be doing this roughly one week of time for every three months of construction effort in a project. So for a six-month project, we'll be doing this for about two weeks, and we'll be coding then in week three. In an XP project, Ron Jeffries will be coding in week one. And as Jim Highsmith wrote in one of his books, you know, so on an FDD project, Jeff DeLuca's coding in week three, Ron Jeffries is coding in week one. It's really not a significant difference. Oh, okay. I see. Oh, well, after the modeling is done, we go away and we build a features list. And a features list is simple functional decomposition of the domain. So we simply break down the business into all of the various steps that need to be done to perform the functions they need. We write these features out in client language, so in client valued terms. And we have a particular naming template for that. And then we simply right, go along and design and build feature by feature until we're done. So I guess features could then be somewhat analogous to stories, somewhat analogous to use cases, but features tend to be a little more granular than those things. So they're more fine-grained. More fine-grained? Yeah. Okay. So what would be the next step? You have the feature list and, and now? We have the features list, so we'll set a plan and then we simply iterate. Uh, we'll design and build right, groups of features at a time and until we're completed. Okay. And, and how do those, those groups of features mm -hmm. came into the, the project plan? What we'll do at runtime is, so we've got this features list we built initially, when then we'll set the plan for you know what sequence we're going to build things in. And now at runtime, we'll start plucking features out of this list. We have freedom in what arrangement we want to do that, but we're guided by you know dependencies. We're guided by what dates we've agreed certain amounts of functions should be delivered. 
And then the chief programmers will come along, assemble those features. We, we put them into work packages, which is how we move a group of features through design and build at a time. Uh, they'll form a feature team. We'll do design, which is sequence diagramming in, in an object system. And then we'll go away, write the code that needs to be done, uh, inspect it, you know, string test it, unit test it. And what gets promoted to build is a client-valued function. So who is who's the person that 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 plans those those features into into these work chunks and and for the development sounds like like the development team does it or or does it the customer? No, that's that's there's two levels of planning if you like. So there's upfront we get together with the customer and model a domain and use that knowledge transfer to build a features list and set our high level plan. And our high level plan simply says for fair, very fairly large chunks of features in what calendar month will that amount of work finish? And that tends to follow the major workflow or business cycle in the area. This comes out of the modeling activity. So when you ask a customer to come in and describe their business in a series of 20 minute or so topics, those topics, that petitioning will tend to follow the major workflow or business cycle in the domain. So take lending at banking for an example. We start off with prospecting, then we create a basic application, maybe just a name and address. And then we specify what sort of uh, loan it's going to be, a credit card, a mortgage, an overdraft. Next, we specify what security will be pledged to secure the line, what collateral. Then you do credit evaluation, you know, you submit for approval, and, and on it goes. And so those would be the those high-level chunks, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll then, uh, at, at high-level planning time, we'll say, you know, what calendar month we think those things will complete by. So we'll have a very coarse plan that goes back to the client that says something like, you'll get prospecting in January, you know, and you'll get basic application in March and, you know, uh, individual lines of credit in June and, you know, and, and so on. So that's uh, high level planning, if you want to think of it that way, just as the modeling is high level design. Now, when we get construction time, right, the engine, if you like, of the project, there's a just in time detail design that's taking place, which is the sequence diagramming. And then there's just-in-time detailed planning. So when we decide that, okay, we're going to do these 10 features, let's say, it's at that point in time that a chief programmer, and it's a chief programmer that's doing this, he will estimate right, his, his dates for those milestones across those 10 features. It's done at that point in time. But it's at this work package level, and the work package can't take longer than 10 weeks. So, uh, sorry, 10 days, two weeks. So that's the fixed batch, if you like, in FDD. However, it, it doesn't mean, though, that there's a two-week iteration in FTD. So it's not a fixed two-week cycle. There'll be multiple work packages active at any point in time, and they'll be overlapping different stages of their own life cycles. Yeah. So there isn't a fixed two-week iteration, if you like, in FTD, but we never do a batch of work that takes longer than two weeks. Oh, okay, so you, you do not have these, these kind of, of fixed iterations uh, where you staff the iteration with those different features and stuff like that that are all finished at the end of the iteration. So you have more of these, these work chunks mm -hmm. and they are planned over time instead of fixed iterations, fixed time. You have more, more of this kind of, of time boxing per feature and not time boxing in general? Well, yeah, I mean, time boxing is a different philosophy. So time box management says that the date is the only thing that matters. And in order to make a date, we'll drop function or drop features. So that, that's not what we do here. What we're doing here is we're saying that when we batch up a group of features for design and build into one of these work packages, so that they don't get too big, I want to constrain that effort to no more than two weeks worth of effort. But if we don't complete, then it's going to turn red and it'll stay red until it's finished. I won't drop the features out just to arbitrarily make some date. Mm -hmm. So it's different in that respect. 
it's different that it's not a fixed two-week iteration and that, that it, it isn't a fixed two-week iteration across the entire project. So each group of features right, can't take longer than two weeks to complete, but there'll be multiple of these work packages active at any point in time, and they could be at different stages of their own two-week cycles. Right? So that's, that's the difference there, if you like. Okay. So um, we have the feature list, we've planned the work chunks, and uh, what, what is the next step that, that is described in, in feature-driven development? Well, as I say, once we, once we then start actually designing and building the features in these work packages, uh, that's essentially it. We're going to keep doing that until all of the features we identified in the features list are done, at which stage the system is complete. We've, we've now uh, designed and built all of the functional requirements. Okay, in uh, in many agile methodologies, there's the idea of continuous integration and then yep. daily deployment. I mean, yep. or or whatever release often, release mm -hmm. early. How does it look like in in feature driven development? Yeah, that's fundamental to FDD. So it's absolutely continuously integrated. The only increment to build in FDD is itself a client valued function, right? And since the features are so very granular, I mean, features are being completed every week. And completed is a great word to get to use in a project, by the way. And we get to use that word a lot in FDD, right? Okay. So, yeah, every feature that is promoted to build is itself a client-valued function. It could, you know, it could be broken off and tested independently in client-valued terms. And so that does allow a lot of parallelism for system tests, for example. And so inherently then, every feature is itself a continuous integration. The builds are inherently deployable at any point in time. So we are continuously integrating. FDD is heavily incremental. You know, and, and incrementalism is the antidote to integration hell. Right? Yeah, I give a system of production after every every week or every work chunk that is complete. Well, that, that's possible. Yeah, it's not something I would probably do. Right? I mean, trying to deploy it to, to production weekly would be interesting, but it's certainly possible. Yes, each of those builds is a potentially deployable system. What you can do though is you can hand off to system test at that sort of frequency, and so we can get a lot more parallelism. Mm -hmm. But I would, yeah, I would. Me personally, I wouldn't recommend we try and deploy to production that often. But yeah, if it if it works, you could. Yeah, it'd be po it would be possible. I remember Ken Beck Ken Beck writing in his book about daily deployments. So yeah. it could be possible for web applications, maybe. Well, yeah. Again, I don't know. Does he, does he really mean daily deploy to production? I'm not sure I would do that. But but yeah, it's possible. FDD would handle that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It would absolutely handle that. Its its unit of development, the feature, is very granular, and so that gives you a lot of the flexibility to do this sort of thing. And you do some 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 kind of replanning continuously, or well, as I say, it's the detailed planning and the detailed design is all done just in time. So we'll only estimate a feature at the moment we actually now have to design and build it. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, you could say, yeah, that's been continuously reevaluated because we're only having to make those estimates at the point we actually do the work. So that, that, that I mean, also that you did these initial design, initial planning, the, the rough, rough plan for whatever a year or I don't know is is adapted on time as well. Well, it could be, but I think the 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 secret to this success is that that initial plan is is very coarse, though, right? It's very large blocks of function, and we only designate in which whole calendar month we're going to deliver it. Yeah, we'll say you'll get this function in February. We don't say February one or February twenty eight. We just say February. And so we get a lot of play now in the detailed sequencing of this stuff. And so it's it can happen, but it's not a majority case that we'll need to go back to those initial dates and, and revise them. Oh, okay. But you could, you could easily add stuff. Sure, you can. And if we miss one of those dates, one of those things is going to go red. I mean, we have a chart that communicates this. So one of those boxes will go red. Uh, but my this is a philosophy, but my bias here is that 
I won't now add a, I won't try and turn that thing back to uh, blue, which means in progress or white not started, just to try and make the plan look good. I mean, if it's late, it's late, and if, if that box will stay red for a period of time. I you know, I think that's an important way to you know build up trust with the client. It's a very open and transparent system, FDD. And yeah, so if something's late for some reason, we will have discussed that. And if it's okay, it's okay. But I'll leave that box red until it finishes. I think it's it's very interesting to hear more about these these transparency in feature driven development. So what what are the mechanisms that make the process transparent? Only these these let's say weekly deployment possibilities, right. or are there other techniques? There's a lot of techniques. It's but it's the sort of thing that's not well suited to radio. So <laughs> it's very visual. So yeah, there's a lot of reports and, and uh, tracking in FDD. Um, there's a thing called a parking lot chart, which is very, very popular now. A lot of other methods are using it, non-agile methods as well. This sort of rolls up those larger chunks of function. It's a, a it's a chart that, that's got like colored boxes for what each of the things are. It's all expressed in client language. It's a decomposition of the business itself, right? And there's a color system for, you know, uh, white is not started. They go blue if they're in progress. There's little progress bars that, that show the progress movement. Um, they go red if they're late. They go green if they're complete. And so that's a very visual way of communicating uh, value back to the client since everything on that chart is, you know, some grouping of business function. Mm -hmm. uh, and underneath that, then there's a lot of detailed reporting of, you know, the, the individual features themselves, all of their discrete milestones as they're built and deployed. And if, if any one feature misses one of its milestones, we capture reason text for why that is and who was working on it. And all of this stuff is there and visible if people want to dive into that level of detail. Okay, but it is a little hard to describe. You sort of need to see it, yeah. You know? But there are there are samples of all of this stuff at the FTD website. Okay, so we can we can put the website on the on the show notes. Yeah, sure. So um, we 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 get this rough overview, but about the 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 planning and the release cycles and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. um, can you tell us more about the the details inside the development cycle? So uh, I I remember extreme programming giving you a lot of advice how to actually implement a feature with test-driven development and pair programming and stuff like that. Okay. Are there there similar techniques? There are certain techniques we recommend you use, but we don't we don't do a lot of how-to at that sort of level, right? So FDD says, uh, for example, when you come to detailed design, let's assume an object system. The primary artifact we're going to produce in the detailed design is the sequence diagram. So that's now looking at the classes in this model. How are they going to collaborate to perform this function? And as we work that out, we are now going to populate that model with content. We're going to add methods and attributes to the classes to be able to perform this function. Uh, so FTD talks about doing that as a practice. There are other things like writing you know, your class and method prologs first and considering uh, error flows at design time rather than later, those sorts of things. Uh, it also says that we should do formal design and code inspections uh, as a technique, right? but FTD doesn't say anything about how to run one. Right? Uh, so like a lot of Agile methods, which is one, one of the many things Agile gets right, all of the methods, is that you know, they recognize that software construction is a human activity, and you, we can't be prescriptive about what you do in every possible circumstance. I mean, projects are just far too complex. You know, we can't prescribe for every given situation, what do you do? Yeah. Right. It says you should do inspections. It doesn't tell you how to run one. It assumes your chief programmers know how to do that or that if they don't, they know to ask for help. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And if they're not smart enough to know either of those two things, then no method is really going to help here. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the term chief programmer. Yeah. I think for, for a second, third time now. 
Okay. So, w- w- what is what is this, this kind of chief yeah, programmer? That's just the role name, and that's showing my heritage a little bit. But it's just the role name. So it's your A class developer. It's your development leads, or your senior developers, or you know whatever label you want to use. It, it's the the good ones, right? The guys that have that design and code ability, have that sort of full life cycle experience. So it's 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 not a formal role in in uh, FTD projects. Oh, I guess it depends how you define formal. I mean, we we need to recognize, right? I mean, variations in programmer productivity are one of the most well measured and experimented and understood parts of IT. We know that the good ones are anywhere from ten to fifty times the not so good ones. And so, if we're going to run software projects, I mean, we must be cognizant of that sort of stuff. Just as we need to worry about differences in complexity from one class to another, we need to be aware of differences in skill levels from one resource to another. So FTD certainly understands and embraces that. And so it says, those developers, the better ones, they're the ones that I want to be involved in the modeling. They're the ones that I want to lead the design. But I I want them to actively mentor the other developers with as many and frequent interactions as possible. So I want to transfer some of that 10 to 50x productivity as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. And so they're, if you like, sort of the the, uh, control point, if you like. They're the ones that are going to uh, facilitate that detailed design. They're the ones that will make sure the thing string tests and unit tests before we're promoted into build, those sorts of activities. Okay, but there, there are no no explicit activities that where, where only the chief programmer is allowed to do that. It's more that you you stuff those people together into into the project. Well, I mean, they're the ones that I say decide, you know, whether we're going to inspect or not. They that's their judgment call. They're the ones that go along and report the dates. You know, um, but there's no reason that another developer couldn't do that. It just makes sense for the chief programmers to do it since they're the ones orchestrating the work. Okay. So that's really all it is. It's it's not a ceremonial position, if you like. There's no higher ceremony with the thing. But but it is a recognition of there are different skill levels with developers, and so we want the better ones to be in control of some of these things and mentoring the the not the, the less better ones. For what what kind of of projects do you think feature driven development is is the best method in, in contrast to many maybe other agile methodologies or, or other processes? Well, that's an interesting question, man. It's um, I I don't think about things that way. So I don't you know. So so firstly, be FTD is the best method. I, I don't have that sort of philosophy. Yeah, you know, I don't consider FTD the one and only one true way that software development can be done. Right. And when I work with people, the first thing I tell them is, you know, if you've got something that's already working for you, then my advice is going to be to keep using it, right? Whatever that may be. Yeah? Uh, and if it's reliable and repeatable, then you know, why don't you tell us how you do that? So, you know, it's it's not often a uh, you can't. I don't believe you can be purist about this stuff. I, it's not often I'll do 100% FTD implementation. I'll look at what are the current resources, what are the current practices, what are the constraints, what's working and what's not, and then it, you know, it's a mix and match of of practices and approaches. So I certainly have my opinions on what things I believe in and uh, that, that work and things that I wouldn't do given a free choice. Like I'm not a fan of use cases as an example, but if you're using use cases and they're working for you, then I'm going to be using them too if we're working together. Yeah. Uh, there was a lending system built for a bank in Singapore, which is sort of the poster project for FTD. Now, I don't like use cases, but that project had three and a half thousand pages of them. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, we'll absolutely work with them if they're working for you. So in terms of FDD being the best, I don't think of it that way. Uh, the other part of your question of you know, what sort of project is it suitable for? Uh, again, I have a different view here. I don't see the agile methods aligning that way. I, I, I think it's more about people than it is about the methods. 
Yeah, I think certain methods resonate with certain people and, and they're the ones they should explore. So what I tell people when they ask this, this sort of question, you know, which method should I use? Um, Jim Highsmith is one of the fathers of the Agile movement. Uh, he's written several great books. One of them is called Agile Software Development Ecosystems. Okay, we, we can put that in show notes as well. We so. can, okay. yeah. Now, in that book, he describes all of the six or seven Agile methods in the one book. Right? So you can buy that book, you read it, Now, you know, two or three of those methods are going to resonate with you. They're going to call out your name, you know, and, and two or three of the others are not going to resonate with you. Yeah? And so whatever those two or three are, they're the ones you should probably explore. Yeah? And whether that's FTD or not, you know, to me, it really isn't, isn't of much import. The only caveat I would or warning I would put in here is that, you know, so you might read this book and you find a method that resonates strongly with you, um, but it, it might not resonate strongly with your company. So there is the you do have the problem of having to sell it also. Are there any 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 special requirements for for the company that the company should fulfill to to be able to do feature driven development? Oh, well there are certain cultural things and I I don't think that's FTD specific. I think that's common to all agile methods. So I mean agile makes agile understands software constructions of human activity and it makes those sorts of concerns first class issues. You know, so there are certain cultures um where that's going to be challenging. Like, you know, there are, I don't want to name them, but there are certain cultures where saying no is just not the done thing. You know, well, that's very unagile. It would be very difficult to implement any agile method in, a, in an environment like that. Yeah. You know, they're all pretty open and transparent methods, and we need to be able to reset plans or you know, say no or say things that haven't worked. And you know. So they're the sorts of cultural issues that are in play. Okay. Yeah. We, we heard a bit about, about the customer collaboration, uh, and it seems like the customer collaboration happens mostly in the first part of this rough design stuff. Is there any customer collaboration, any ongoing customer collaboration? Yeah, it's continual. Um, so, I mean, we certainly do this upfront activity and that's full time with them. And, and, and that's a nice way to bring us all together, actually. Uh, but then it's continual after that. So as we're moving through, um, like in building the features list, we may need to check back with the domain experts. That's not uncommon. And then as we go through and design and build features, often we need to check back with the main experts again as well. Uh, there'll be things, you know, the high-level stuff, as I said, is fairly high-level. When you get down to the detail level, there, there tend to be typical triggers where we'll need to check back with the domain, uh, either in the form of a document or a person, and sometimes both. So at the level of an individual feature, which is very tiny, very granular, though, those typical triggers are algorithmic complexity or data complexity. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example of, the, of either. When we're doing our shape modeling up front, uh, let's say it's a lending system at a bank, right? So loans have many terms and conditions. One of the terms and conditions of a loan is its interest rate. Yeah? Now, there's a simple way to calculate interest, and uh, then there's the way banks do it. Yeah? And, and it changes often, and it's negotiable for commercials and corporates. So if we were color modeling, for example, we would have a blue term and condition description class. It's got some sort of interest rate method on it. Now, in terms of the shape model at a high level stage, that's enough. We know that shape is right. When well, Now, during construction, when we hit a feature to, that has to actually calculate interest, now I need to know what that formula is, right? What's the business rule for doing this? And in that particular case, I would probably be checking back with the domain, most likely in the form of a person and a document. Yeah? Another example of this might be data complexity. Uh, if it's a commercial mortgage, uh, say a hospital or a hotel, You know, there's a lot of data elements, a lot of attributes, say, insist need to be recorded. Um, 
you know, how many rooms does the thing have, how many beds per room, which rooms have a spa bath, this sort of thing. Right? Again, when we're shape modelling, we don't need to know all of those hundred attributes. Right? When we hit a feature to do with establishing a commercial security commitment, now I, need, now I do need to know what those hundred attributes are, and I would probably check back with the domain in the form of a, a document in that case. So there's two examples of where we're going back to them in terms of right, more requirements analysis. There'll be just as many, if not more, examples of you know, going back to them for clarification and then detail, that sort of thing. And remember also, we're continuously delivering here, so there's a lot of feedback loop going on also. Okay. So this this seems uh, it seems like a cultural issue for companies as well. So I have this this close collaboration between customers and development teams. Oh yeah, and that's fundamental, isn't it? I mean, this is one thing we get wrong in IT a lot. I mean, yeah, we know we need good access to users, and yet we go to the business and ask for them, and they tend to always say uh, they're too busy. Oh yeah. And but what do we do? Well, we default. <laughs> well, we shouldn't. <laughs> it it really matters. That's why Agile says you you know not only should you have good access to them, you should be co-located if you can be. Yeah. But we go to the business and we ask for access to the users and they say they're too busy and then we go, well, okay, and we go off and try and build something anyway. Well, it's pretty hard to delight a group of people if we don't have access to them. Yeah. So, you know, we, yeah, we need to get much better at that. We need to be more assertive about this sort of stuff. Um, I believe one of your primary tasks as a project manager is education. And it's to educate those above you, which senior management in this particular case, and those below you, the people working for you. And... In terms of educating those above us, say the business, uh, yeah, we need to be we need to get a lot better at that, at, at making them understand the implications of these sorts of things. You, know, you want us to build IT systems that delight your users, but we can't get access to them because they're too busy. How does feature-driven development relates to other agile methods? Well, I sort of I sort of touched on this earlier. Whereas, you know, I tend to come at it more from the people. So, you know, you'll find a method resonates with you. That's one you should explore. And if if it doesn't, then you probably shouldn't. Um, you know, so at the detail level, there are some differences, of course. Um, I mean, there are two places where FDD and XP disagree, and that is pair programming and collective ownership. But if you look at the other ten practices in XP, FDD doesn't, as most projects should. So I think what's more interesting, so rather than the detailed differences, I think what's more interesting is what's in common, what binds them together. And that's one of the real gifts, I think, of the Agile community. It's those four value statements. That's what binds all of the six or seven methods together. And at the detail level, yeah, there are some differences, but they all share that common value system. You know, we value working code more than any other form of progress and, you know, those those value statements. So to me, that's the more the more interesting part. Uh, Steve Hayes is, uh, I believe, the best XP'er in the world. And he and I have talked together a lot. And, um, you know, we believe if you call yourself an Agilist or a part of that Agile community, but you want to argue at the detail level about DSDM versus Scrum versus whatever, then you don't get Agile. I mean, if you really want to argue at that level of detail, you don't get Agile. It's the common value statements that bind all those methods together. So you, you, you could easily think of, of, of projects doing some parts of feature-driven development, combining them with other parts of Scrum. And Absolutely, and that, that's a common mix. Right? Scrum and FDD is a fairly common I think Scrum and everything is a fairly common mix, actually. Scrum's very popular these days. Uh, Ken does a terrific job promoting that. But yeah, Scrum and XP is a dominant combination. Scrum and FDD is very common also. So how, how does this combination often look like? Well, what is your experience on this, this Scrum and feature-driven development combination? Uh, I don't have a lot of detail on the Scrum side, obviously. I mean, if if I'm running the project, it's going to be pretty much FDD. So, 
you know. So, but I, uh, you know, I know Scrum talks about more from a management perspective, and so it's it's fairly easy to to slide underneath it, right? More discrete tasks and techniques, which is what's in a lot of FTD, mm-hmm. uh, which is also why XP can fit with it fairly well. Okay, so have have this kind of, of of Scrum features for 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 the management and feature development for 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 the actual implementation. Well, yeah, you can do that. I mean, there'd be points of difference. I mean, there's a burn down chart in Scrum, but that's very similar to the trend report in FDD. I mean, one plots up, one plots down, but they're reasonably similar. Other big differences would be if you're using Scrum as an overriding management philosophy. I mean, it does have a fixed iteration in the time box, which is the Scrum itself. So you'd be superimposing that over the top of FTD, but that would that would be easy to do. Again, granular features gives you all sorts of flexibility in how you want to package the work up. Um, you know, Scrum does daily stand-ups. I've done daily stand-ups on a lot of projects. I don't mandate it as a practice, but you know, there's a lot of uh, similarity and good feeling here. I mean, Ken's a good project manager, and, you know, and I, I like Scrum. I have no problem recommending it. Okay. So I, I have to ask the, 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 the typical agile methods question. Uh-huh. Uh, what happens to fixed price projects? So okay. I often hear these, these kind of uh, the features are flexible and we could replan and stuff like that. And well, many of the old-fashioned fashion software engineering guys say, okay, now I have a fixed price project and this is contract negotiation stuff. And, yeah. and how does it look like for, for feature-driven development? Well, every project I've ever run has been fixed price. So, I mean, that's the majority case. Yeah. So I think time and materials work is really the minority case. So uh, And I mean, I never get asked to do it. So if if people are able to pick up work like that, then then you know they're better at the marketing side of this than I am. So so now fixed price development is the norm. That's what I've been doing for you know 15, 20 years. And and so therefore, obviously, FTD is optimized around that. And so it uses this upfront activity as a way to calibrate what that construction estimate ought to be. But because the plan is coarse, right? I've got a lot of flexibility in the detailed sequencing of all of those features. As long as I still hit these fairly broad milestones, though, mm-hmm. yeah, fixed price. So fixed price development is the norm. It, it fits very well. Okay, and for contract negotiation situations, typically in these contract negotiation situations, you have to 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 write down the the, the features or, or the, the the main stuff that the software should fulfill. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's two. I mean, there's two parts to this. So the really interesting part of contract negotiation is actually non-functional requirements. That's the more challenging part. Once you've built a features list, right, they're very granular. Every feature in it is expressed in client-valued language. And it's a complete decomposition of all the functional requirements. So that now becomes a clear statement of work for the functional requirements. It's the non-functionals that I think are are more challenging. Now, what I do there is non-functional requirements really are a a statement of work issue. So they're things like, you know, it must be usable or it must perform well. And so the sort of conversation you need to have with the client then, and, and it's just really an education process, and we're also testing the waters. It's, if you want to think of it this way, it's like a reverse interview. I'm interviewing them. Yeah. So if they demand something like, yeah, it must perform well, you go, okay, well, how are we going to measure that? What does perform well mean? How do we measure it? Yeah. Usually that will stump them, but if it doesn't, they might come back and say, okay, it must have a sub two-second end-to-end response time. Yeah. I'll go, okay, great. Well, look, you know, We're front-ending some existing systems you already have. So if you can instrument this entire thing, so you can isolate the back-end systems, the network latency between it and us as a server, the other workload that's going on the server, the virtual machine as well we're running in, the render time then out to the browser and different levels of IE even have very different render times for tables and so forth. If you can instrument all of that and isolate all of it out, 
Yeah, I'll guarantee you a sub two second code path through our business logic. You bet. Now, the point of having that conversation is, of course, no one can do that. And so what we're looking for here is reasonableness. Do they understand what this really means? So and I'm looking for reasonableness. Do, you know, can we look each other in the eye and all right, what, what can we write down here that makes both of us feel reasonably safe but can't be completely open-ended? Because these non-functionals, the, the real difficulty is, in, yeah, what criteria are we going to use to measure that stuff? Well, if you can't give criteria for how it's going to be measured, then how can I possibly satisfy it? So when I'm having this conversation, though, you know, it really isn't contract negotiation. I'm looking to see, do they understand? Do they get the problem? And if, if, I, if I think they do and they're reasonable, yeah, well, let's work together. If I see that, no, they, they really don't, and they're going to be difficult, you know, I might suddenly become busy. <laughs> But at, at the end, feature-driven development is, bu is built like many other agile methods on, on this kind of customer collaboration, trust yeah. between the parties. Exactly, and, right. And if you have yeah. to go to the, to the lawyer, maybe your project has failed anyway. So Exactly. But we can, you know, we can upfront some of this activity by, as I said, non-functionals, by having some of these conversations up front. We're going to get a feel for yeah, what's the relationship going to be like between these two parties, because it, yeah, it does need to be collaborative. Okay. Yeah. Are there are there any other things about feature-driven development you would like to to tell to our listeners? Any any other things we 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 missed till now? Oh well, not really. I mean, we hinted at most of it. I mean, the the things that draw most people towards FDD is it gives them a good baseline for reporting against. And that matters to a lot of commercial and corporate in-house development. And they, they really like its tracking and reporting. So, I mean, if you go to the website and look at the samples, the parking lot chart, the trend report, the progress summary reports, it's, it's very visual, it's very transparent, it's all communicated in business terms. And that's what most people seem to really like about it. And it seems to be what draws most people towards it. There's, there's also some documentation about feature-driven development online. Well, yeah, again, if they go to that feature-driven development website, that's where most of the discussion sort of takes place. I mean, it's not a high traffic, well, I should say, it's a very high reader right, uh, traffic website. doesn't have a lot of new threads, maybe one a week or something like that. I mean, I don't do anything in terms of marketing or advocacy. I mean, I like to run projects is, is what I like to do. But the threads that are there are very high quality. And, and yeah, if you browse that site, and I've linked the most um, interesting threads on the homepage, then, yeah, that's where you can learn a lot. There's a gallery there with sample photos. There's photos from projects and actual samples of reports and, and things like that. Okay, great. So any, any other pearls of wisdom you, will, you would like to tell us? <laughs> uh, no, as I said, just remember that software construction is a human activity and we really need, unless we can learn to think, manage and deal with human systems, we really have no hope with these software systems. And I guess the other thing I would say is that we also need to get much better at educating those above us the business or top management, the implications of some of the things they force us to do. Okay, great. So thank you very, very much for, for the interview and uh, hope to see you soon. Okay, thank you for the invitation. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. 
Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.